here. Welcome to another episode, a new edition, a new year of 100 Proof. I am Kevin Rose. I am joined by Derek Edwards. And then also today, special guest, Sam uh, at, is it at NFT Statistics? At, I always forget your handle. No, at Punk, what is it? 9059. We're <laughs> about that. I'm sorry, Sam. I mean, it's a random four digits. You have digits. so many names. That's true. Four, four digits is a lot to remember. You've got a you've got a punk name now. You've got you've doxed yourself this last year, so you got a real name now. Uh, yeah, what's, I don't what's your really Discord know, handle? I don't know what to call Sam anymore. It's pretty confusing. Uh, it's uh, no, go ahead, Sam. I was just on Discord. I'm NFT stats too. Um, Sam works. Sam's pretty good. I think <laughs> I can I, get you. I can probably get you the Twitter handle if you want to change. By the way, <laughs> you can get NFT yeah. stats. All right, I'll uh, see what we can do. Let's talk about that offline. It is good to see you guys. Happy New Year. I'm, I'm stoked to be back in the saddle. It is, it is great to see you gentlemen. Uh, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a minute since we, uh, we had a chance to do this, Kev. I know we've been plotting in the background over the last month about some of the upcoming stuff. So this will be the first of, uh, of many uh, upcoming episodes. And I think it's a great one to kick it off with Sam. Yeah, 100%. And um... I, will, I should say one thing about Sam, for people that don't know Sam, uh, I mean, you've probably seen him on our podcast feed at this point, but um, he, he runs uh, all things data, research, analytics, quant, all the craziness uh, over at Proof. And so, Sam, you just do a ton of research for us that I know if you're a Proof Collective member, you, you get to see uh, in terms of research reports and then also, you know, dailies and you've got a, a, a podcast that you're going to be doing on a daily basis. There's a lot coming. I think that's probably a great place to start real quick. You know, Derek, you and I had been chatting in the background over the last couple of months of, you know, how can we make this new year something that is just especially in a, a bear market? And, and Sam will argue in a minute here that we're in a bowl, which I'm excited to talk about. But in a, in a bear market, how do we make this like, how do we just go for it? Like, let's fucking go like, like, this is the year to swing for the fences, to swing hard, to go on all fronts and really build a world-class company. And at the same time, produce world-class media, like high quality content that people can consume that is trusted, that is valuable, that is predictable, that comes out on a regular uh, cadence. And, you know, Derek and I, Sam, I'll just to bring you up to speed on this behind the scenes, we committed this year to doing 100 proof once a week. So we're going to do that, um, which is very excited. We've committed to, I love, this, love the salute from, from Derek, if you're not watching the, <laughs> the, uh, the video version. We committed to doing this together, which we're going to find a studio space that is somewhere closer to your house, Derek, because we're both in LA. Might as well do this together. We're going to get a live switching machine. Um, we're going to really up the production. When I say live switching, I mean, when you watch the video stream of us, you're going to see that we'll be able to switch between graphics we're talking about in real time. We can live stream this if we want to, we can do audience Q and a, like it's going to be a full on like studio production, like almost TV show ready version of hundred proof. So we are excited to do this. Um, it's going to be great, Derek. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. Dude, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. I think where we both netted out on this is, I mean, the, well, two things. The first is the response that we get from doing these, uh, these, these episodes together has been pretty wild. I think people really enjoy hearing about what's going on in the space and, and getting kind of different views on, on, on what's kind of happening between both of us and the guests that we bring on. But then two, you and I have done a bunch of live shows over the last six months. And uh, those have been so much fun to do. So 
I think taking some of the the core lessons learned over the the, the last year and and trying to uh, trying to package something that we think can be pretty special. So it'll be fun to get in the studio and to start recording those live. Yeah, and I think lastly, the thing to to put on top of this, which is going to be interesting, and we're going to talk to the Proof Collective about this here shortly, is how can we ensure that we get the broadest distribution for this content? Because we right now, you know, we do this thing where we release it early to the Proof Collective. And w- but what we want to do is say when you know Mauricio, who who runs all the kind of back end of all this on the the video production side, when we go live, can this hit multiple channels? Can it hit YouTube Live? Can it hit Twitter Spaces? Can it hit all these different areas where people are hanging out and spending their time? And can we turn this into something that has distribution that is you know four or five plus x from where it is today? And if we can do that. Then at the same time, we're drumming up more excitement for all the projects that we're building at Proof and then all the other great projects that we're showcasing as well that are not the stuff that we're building at Proof. So I think it's a win-win for the community, for artists, for builders, and, and for all the stuff that we're, we're focused on. So it's going to be fun. And then Sam, you've got, um, you've got your own world of things that you're doing and you know, you're putting out these expressos, which are these amazing data-dense PDFs that come out daily that give us a quick hot take on what's going on in the industry. You're going to turn that into more of a daily video. Like, can you tell people how that's transitioned and, and where you're going with that? Yeah. So we're going to start doing a daily, it was ho- hopefully a five minute podcast show uh, every weekday. So Monday through Friday, I, I think the, it, it came about because I've been putting out uh, the espresso, which has just gone to the proof collective. It's got a ton of data. It's got a, a bit of analysis. Uh, and I think a couple things, one is that people, a lot of people are saying we want a video version. So that, that was a, a quick, easy one to, to win too. I personally like talking more than writing. I think when I talk, I, I get more of my personal takes in, uh, and a, a, a you know, writing, I, I find myself a bit more serious. So I think for me personally, the chance to actually talk and, and express kind of what I think is interesting happening in the market would be cool. And then three, I just think in the market right now, we have a lot of talk shows, a lot of spaces and whatnot, but just a quick five minute and the format's going to be, these are the it's called the countdown and it's going to be like, these are the three to five most important charts in the market today. Uh, so it's chart based, uh, picture based, um, you know, and then obviously talking on top of it. So hoping to, to get that out every day, probably around uh, 12 to one Pacific times the goal. Uh, yeah. Excited about that. Plus uh, when you do these over video, Sam, uh, we get the pleasure of seeing your evolving pink hair collection behind you. Which <laughs> exactly. Is, uh, it feels like, Feels like it's always different every time I look. Well, Mouse stepped up my camera, so now it's all you know, bokeh blurred <laughs> in the background. But, uh, but yeah, got those uh, pictures back. The largest there. collection of pink NFTs from, from Sam for those that Gotta don't love know. It. Let's go. Um, so w- one other thing I think is is really awesome, Sam, that you've been doing is you've been stepping up and and filling a little bit of the gap because I've been so busy with other things and doing artist interviews as well. So you're doing longer form content. People should be aware of that's going to go out on the main proof feed as well. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to update everyone with all the appropriate links and where they can get this great content, uh, going into this year, but it's going to be an exciting new push on the media side for us on all fronts. So, yeah, and thank you. Pumped. I mean, you built such a, such an awesome platform and to, to give me the chance to host uh, these episodes has been great. So, you know, it's, that's been a, a really fun thing over the past uh, few months. Well, I think Mal makes us all look good uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> it takes out a lot of my ums and ahs and all the weird things that I go. end up saying. But uh, okay, cool. So 
let's jump into some of the things. I, I think the first re- thing... Real quickly. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Kevin, I just... For people that are watching on video, I think we all got to know, like, where are you right now? You've got this crazy yeah, background that, that, behind you. <laughs> What's that's the deal? Totally exactly, that's exactly <laughs> where I was going to go. Uh, basically, yeah, this is not my house. That's not my decor. I don't go for the, the kind of flower <laughs> pattern. Um, typically, the gold flowers. But this is... Uh, I'm in Las Vegas. I'm at the Wynn um, Hotel. Um, and it's, it's, it's CES time. So this is CES for me has been, uh, quite the conference that I, it's a conference I grew up with for the, for those people that don't know, I, I used to live in Las Vegas when I was in my youth. Uh, my dad moved us out here cause this is where that he could find a job. And, um, I don't, I'm not a Vegas person in my core. Like it's not my, it's not where I want to live, <laughs> but it is, it is certainly, you know, I have so many memories here. And one of the memories I have is that you know, I'm dating myself here, but in the 90s, um, they had CES and Comdex were the two big conventions. And CES, a consumer electronics show, was massive. And you had to be uh, 16 to attend, 16 years of age to attend. And I was not 16. Mm. And so every year I would lie on the application form and I would get a free pass. I'd find a free pass. And because they used to like just give out these free passes um, if you were like an industry worker. And so I'd say I was at a company, blah, blah, blah. And I uh, would lie about my age and, and it would allow me to get into CES and go look at all the, the latest, you know, gadgets and stuff. But it was funny. I, I would turn 16 and then literally the year, the off year when I turned 16, they upped the age to 18. So I had to keep lying all the way through until I got to, in, until I got, was able to get, actually get in when I turned 18. So um, I have a long history with CES. Uh, I was invited to, to give a, a main stage talk here. Um, which is just going to be fantastic. We're going to talk about all things Moonbirds, all things Proof. And the big announcement that we're going to make, um, and by the time you're seeing this, it'll have already been uh, announced, is that we've signed with United Talent Agency, UTA. And we did that for Proof, uh, specifically with the idea of leveraging this talent agency for us to go after much, much bigger partnerships and uh, build the Moonbirds brand into something uh, much more uh, along the lines of a household name. You know, that's, that's the end goal. So for those of you that don't know, um, you know, signing with a talent agency, it's a two-way street. They have to, you can't just like knock on the door and everyone just says, okay, let's sign and let's work together. They have to really want to work with you. And, you know, you kind of go around and we, we shopped around and met with, you know, four of the three or four of the bigs that were out there. And UTA, in our opinion, had just the deepest bench of people that were Web3 native. They have a dedicated Web3 division, which is awesome. And they just really understood, you know, what's going on in the space and why it's so exciting. So we're talking about what happens is they essentially function, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but they essentially fu- function as kind of a business development unit, external business development unit for you uh, in your business. And so they're 1,400 people strong. You know, they have divisions in film and music and sports, uh, books, video games, you know, all the branding and licensing stuff, uh, speaking, uh, which is, you know, I, I'm partially on stage here because they lined up that speaking engagement for me. Um, you know, marketing, they do fine arts related stuff, broadcast, you name it. They're massive, right? I mean, UTA is just a juggernaut in this space. And so for us, it's like, this is the year to build the Moonbirds brand. This is the year that I would say, you know, if I had to look back and just be honest with you all, last Q3 and Q4, entering into kind of the bear market, um, I would say it was a time of conservation for us. We kept the team lean. Uh, we kind of shied away a little bit from some of the bigger 
swings purposely so that we can conserve capital and just really, you know, we were a little bit gun shy because we had we had delivered some stuff that I'm really proud of, you know, in terms of some of the 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 kind of in chain stuff that we'd done with the dynamic manipulation of layers and some of the cool backgrounds and some really fun stuff. But but I would say those are kind of like little minor, uh, nice little aha moments. But we hadn't really gone after any bigger meteor big swings, and we realized to go for it this year, like it's, it's like gloves are off. We are just going to go hardcore and, 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 and really go swinging with Moonbirds because it, it's time, it's time to build and, and take on more risk and, and really see if we can absolutely crush it with this brand. Like we think we can. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just fired up to have UT at our back here to really help us on, on a whole slew of different things. I mean, they're already helping with conference speakers and there's, there's already several big, very big initiatives and partnerships that we're trying to work through and work on that could lead to some pretty big, meaningful moments for Moonbirds this coming year. So it's, huge. it's good. That's it's huge. huge. We're, we're, all, we're all excited to see how this plays out. And um, yeah, the, the UTA thing is a, is a big deal. It, it'll be, uh, I think... I think you mentioned it. They've got, you know, arms and film and TV and music and sports and live events and gaming and branding and all the things. And so it'll be interesting to see how they evolve as an evolution of what you're trying to build there at Proof and Moonbirds. Yeah, I've I've kind of like I went into I went into Discord and and I probably shouldn't have done this. I don't know. I, I sometimes we have, it's funny as you get bigger as a business, you all know this, you have like people around you that you trust and they're, they're comms people and they're marketing people and they're people that say, okay, Kevin, like you may want to frame it this way. And they're really good at their jobs, right? They like help you craft a message that is succinct, that the audience can, can understand and wrap their heads around. And then there's the times where you just are at 11 o'clock at night, you've had a glass of wine, you go into discord and say some stupid YOLO. shit YOLO. And, and you just <laughs> YOLO into it. And so I've been yellowing into it a little bit more this year and it kind of feels good just because I'm just tired of the haters. Like there's so much FUD out there in general, not just against Moonbirds, but against the entire industry. You know, we see it on TV. We, and and I, some of it is, don't get me wrong, like if people are frauding other people out of cash, like let's bring them down. Like I'm, I'm fine with the FUD that's real because it's going to lead to lasting change and hopefully policies that where this won't happen again. Um, but that said, it's like uh, this year I'm like, let's, let's bring on the FUD because I, I, in working with Justin and working on our product roadmap for the next six months to a year, like this is going to be the year for Moonbirds. And I, I told the, the Discord, I'm like, if after, I, I'm like, stop FUDding, give us this year. And if you aren't sold on our direction and where we're going, I'll FUD myself. Like, like it's fine. Like this is going to be our year to prove our worth. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fired up. Like I haven't been this fired up in a, in a while. Awesome. The it Cowboys back. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of just like the year and uh, how we're, how you know the the space has evolved and and the and kind of the execution and the upcoming questions that we've all got. Sam, you had this awesome thread maybe a week yes. or two ago. Uh, I think you it was like sixteen questions that you were kind of contemplating for this upcoming year for twenty twenty three. I thought it was it was really well well questioned, well said, and maybe we can cover some of them on how the three of us are all kind of thinking about these questions, even if it's just a couple of them, but it'd be fun to kind of riff on that if, uh, if you want to pull that up and you don't mind. And I want some, pre I want some predictions from <laughs> Sam too. I, I noticed there weren't any predictions there and I'm like, okay, 
Big man's got a lot of questions, but no predictions. Let's, no let's answers. Hear. He's all questions, yeah, no answers. Yeah, exactly. Unacceptable. Guys, I tweet a lot. I, like people come at me sometimes like this tweet, like should have been, I was like, I was just thinking what questions I have not tweeted it. That was all I did. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, but yeah, it's a, that's a good point. Maybe I should try to go through and, and answer what I think some of those results will be. Yeah, well, let's let's walk through them because I think this is a fantastic framing for the new year and for this first podcast. Um, you know, are there any here that stand out to you two? I'll let you guys start first of ones that you wanted to to touch on or you have strong feelings around. For me, I mean, I put this one first because I think it's what's what's most important, which is what what brings what's going to bring new collectors into the market in 2023. And when I think back to, I guess, 2021 and like the real bull market, it was Jay-Z making a crypto punk as NFT. It was Visa buying a punk was huge. You know, it really set off a bull market. Steph Curry, there was this kind of celebrity theme and this validation of the space. And you got all these new wallets. And I, I kind of sense over, for a lot of this year, it's been the same investors, you know, moving NFTs from project to project, moving ETH from project to project. I once tweeted to my followers, you know, what, when did you, or when did you buy your first NFT? And I think it was in November and only like 2% had bought their first NFT in the past six months. So basically all the Mm. people I was talking to, all the people in this ecosystem, uh, certainly on Twitter, but it kind of is validated by the data, uh, were people who had gotten in the ecosystem over a year ago. So, you know, one of the things on my mind is what is it that brings new money into the space in 2023, if that's a thing at all? Yeah. One question I have for you, Sam, is is like, you know, we've seen some some dabbling by, say, Instagram, right, where they've they've made it really easy. Uh, I, I don't know how widespread that functionality is. I've never seen it in my uh, Instagram feed. So maybe they haven't done the entire rollout yet. But, you know, one of the things that that we were all kind of looking at very early on was what the work that NBA Top Shot had done. You know, where is like you didn't even really need to know it was an NFT. You could kind of come in, swipe your credit card. I mean, you you did because that was like the 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 hint behind the scenes that it was like yours and you owned it and all that stuff. But um, I guess my point is that there's this kind of like um, consumerization uh, in terms of the 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 functionality and ease of use hitting this point of you know using Apple Pay to check out for an NFT versus you know having to set up MetaMask right, which are two very very drastically different things in terms of technical complexity to pull off as an individual user. Sam, do you do you think that's what we're going to need as or or do you think that, you know, we're going to have like Artblocks has been on a tear for three months and all of a sudden, you know, thousands of new people enter and it's the same old story again where we're setting a MetaMask, we're doing all that. Like, I just don't know. I don't know if there's going to be a catalyst that brings us to millions of users in the next 12 months. Like, yeah, I'd say anything. I think one, the first thing is like this industry is already pretty big, you know, and, and we got to this level through. We got to the, the level we're at through the tools we have now. I agree it is entirely, it's not just imperfect. It's actually pretty bad. Like the number of people who are, I have two very good friends who lost valuable NFTs within a week of their first purchase. And one of them worked for an art museum, you know, so the kind of person we really want buying NFTs and within a week he, he got scammed out of it, you know? And so I, I agree that the current tools are bad, are, are, you know, just leave a lot of vulnerability in users. Um, I think these things like Reddit NFTs, everyone got so excited about Reddit NFTs. You know, I think there was less buzz about Instagram, even the Donald Trump NFT, like all these things where all these new wallets were created. At the end of the day, we didn't see the follow through into like significant usage and trading on just trading of the NFTs. Like on Reddit, 
people said, sure, I'll get my free avatar. And they got a wallet created with that, but they actually never ended up going and using it or trading it. You know, extremely little volume on Reddit now, just a month after or a couple months after all the hype. So I think that that on-ramp, I, I agree. I think we really need it. I think it's going to be a lot more gradual. And I think that's like multiple years uh, as opposed to like something that's just going to hit this year and change everything. You know, I think as far as, I don't want to be too negative though on where we are now, because if you look what happened in 2021, it was incredible. You know, I feel all these, you know, art blocks became a massive thing. You know, CryptoPunks became $100,000 floor. Board Apes still are $100,000 floor. You know, so there was this energy that came into the space and that is still here. I mean, even for the bear market, we're having, you know, you have a Board Ape floor at 100,000. You have multiple projects where NFTs have 10,000 floors, uh, 10,000 US dollar floors. Uh, art block, the top art blocks projects are at all time highs right now in ETH terms. Look at what's happening with Chromie Squiggles. So there still is a ton of activity right now. And kind of the, the first thing that came to mind for me as far as what could be like a new on-ramp would be what if like the MoMA bought or what if, I don't know MoMA at all, I'm not deep in that world, but what if you just had a lot more art museums really get in the space in a serious way? And when, you know, you saw a little bit of that last year, like in Miami where, where they bought the CryptoPunk and that was positioned right next to a Warhol. Yeah. And I don't know, I was thinking, I, I don't think this is the flood that you get when Steph Curry makes a... Uh, a board ape is PFP. I right. don't like. I don't know if we get those floods anymore, but I think maybe you know, trends like that could continue to, to to be some kind of gradual onboarding platform. Well, it's it's interesting, Sam, because um, and then Derek, I'd love your take, but I'll just do one similar analogy here that I'm very familiar with, which is kind of the luxury high end watch market. Having run and been CEO over at Hodinkee for a few years, you know, one of the things that that was very apparent to me in in watching that and being in living that world was that it was, um, it was very much like the art market in that people purchased these things to, as collectors to hold on for the next decade plus. And you know, sometimes they would just hold on to them and pass them down you know, to, to their, their, their kids, right? So that was kind of the, the plan for the distribution of those things over the long term. And it, in reality, it was a very small number of timepieces that were actually and I'm taking, if, if you take Rolex out of that equation, because they produce a million watches a year, but outside of that, you're talking about small uh, production, you know, in the thousands of, of very high end, very expensive pieces of art, you know, wearable art. And what that leads to is actually a, a, a pretty big market. You got Christie's and Sotheby's um, playing in the secondary sales markets. They do the same like contemporary art. They do several auctions per year that focus just solely on watches. And it's a double digit B, billions of dollars a year in new annual revenue business um, out there, the, the, the high-end watch market. So there is a world where NFTs, um, they, they, they become that. They, they are the high-end art market of collectibles. And if you take a look at who's behind empowering, like just say on the, the watch side, it's actually, when you get to the auctions, it's actually just a couple hundred people. And they're the ones there that are sitting there putting up the paddles and doing the bids and driving these prices higher. And, and don't get me wrong. Yes, there's thousands of people behind the scenes that are actually collecting these things, but it's not that big, right? So there is a world where NFTs still are a, you know, a double digit B billion dollar industry, but it's more focused on kind of the art side. And yet we never get to mass adoption on the consumer side. You see what I'm saying? So, so really all great lines of thinking here. And like, this has been a very fun conversation for me to just like, listen, listen to. I'll say, I agree with, with what you're saying, Kevin and Sam, 
I definitely think as it relates to store of value, like ob- like digital objects around like things like generative art and art uh, and like these grail PFPs, like that has product market fit. This idea that you can store value in this digital object and, um, you know, there's other collectors that will demand to hold that object for a variety of reasons, um, whether it's, you know, technical or cultural or historical significance or whatever it may be. Like that idea of ownership of scarce digital goods that could be valuable for these creative, technical, cultural reasons, like that is working. Like we know that that has product market fit. And today that's like a $50 billion in annual sales market in the contemporary art world, right? Like that's the art market as we know today. If you believe that, you know, blockchains and digitization kind of allows uh, like frictions to get relaxed and value transfer to increase and global buyers to come in and find these shelling points to create markets in a much more efficient way, then that $50 billion that represents annual sales in the contemporary art market could look like trillions of dollars in the future. I think that's definitely how I view that vertical. I'll Mm. also take a controversial view and say, this technology is pretty agnostic to, to, to verticals, right? And so, if I'm looking at the global music industry, which is $20 billion in sales, or the gaming market, which is $200 billion in sales, or global media and entertainment, which is $2.5 trillion, my view is like, these, these categories, these verticals haven't quite yet figured out how they're going to use this agnostic infrastructure, which empowers primitives like unique ownership or you know being able to compose these things within greater ecosystems or the ability to record information onto this ledger that anybody can read and write to. They haven't quite figured that part, at, part out yet, but my view is over the next 12 to 18 months, these non-art verticals, so like these separate categories, are going to start tinkering with this technology stack and figure out really compelling products and ways to drive value through these ledgers and digitization and the ownership of these objects. I think the things that I'm looking for over the next 12 to 18 months, because I do think this is coming, is environments that have trade-offs that empower these like unique use cases to get borne out outside of this just like purely sovereign ownership non like censorship resistant, high security guarantees, storing value on a blockchain. And so the things, I think this is a reason why we've seen people move some of these non-store value-like use cases to things like Polygon or to Solana or to Optimism or to Arbitrum or to other layer twos or to sidechains. It's because there's trade-offs that are happening in these environments that are more conducive to these other use cases that don't look like storing value. Um, but could actually empower these types of products to exist around entertainment or gaming or, you know, whatever it may be, the world's, you know, categories of value that exist outside of storing value in contemporary art. And so my controversial view is that over the next 18 to 24 months, and I would say Meta and Instagram and Starbucks and Reddit, these are all kind of leading indicators towards this. My view is that over the next 18 to 24 months, we are going to see a ton of experimentation in like the non-store value like use cases. And my view is like there is a killer product or a killer app that's on the way. And we probably will see the early signs of one uh, in 2023. At least that's... I'm curious. Yeah. 
I'm curious to pick your, your brain on this a little bit more, Derek. Like one of the things, so I, I want to play, I hate devil's advocate. No, I, go for it, dude. I love it. I, we're all just trying to figure this stuff out together. I, you know, every time I, every time I say devil's advocate, I think of that onion story that says devil's advocate turns out just to be asshole. Like I, I always think of that onion story every time I think, I think about it. So he, here's, here's what I worry. Here's my, my biggest concern. I believe everything that you said. My biggest concern is that you're the CTO of Starbucks. Okay. Mm. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, I need to do a rewards program. I'm just making this up. I don't know what Starbucks, yes. Starbucks roadmap looks like, but I need to do a rewards program, digital wallet, blah, blah. Okay. I can't. And then you see FTX hits. It's all over the news. Crypto is uh. a scam. It's all over the news. Someone gets hacked and loses the contents of their wallet. It's all over the news. And you think, gosh, you know, I have pretty performant databases at the ready yes. right now that I've deployed, you know, worldwide infrastructure on that I know is solid, that, it, that can't mm. be hacked, that you know, I don't have to worry about all these other things. I feel that in order for someone like a CTO of Starbucks or you know, insert other major uh, Fortune 500 here to get comfortable and want to take on the additional risk that goes with blockchain is th there has to be an upside that, that outweighs Agree. the potential downside. And so what is that? I, if it's a rewards thing, I'll build it in a centralized fashion. Like, why not? Like, that's easier for me. I don't have to worry about losing my job because I picked the wrong tech, early tech stack, you know, yes. eight months later. I, to so, I totally agree with that framing. And it's the reason why I am an early stage investor. Like, my view is that disruption, like the kind I'm just describing, it's probably not going to happen from a large corporate. It's probably not going to be happen. It's probably not going to happen from a Web2 giant. Those individuals are looking at this design space and trying to find signs of fire that they can copy and replicate. And my view is like the outsized, you know, the outsized products that get built out of this space are probably going to come from somebody like a Moonbirds or a Proof or a Yuga or a brand new startup that's experimenting with this design space and has figured out a way to put these ingredients together in a really compelling mm -hmm. package. And that thing, those things I think are more likely to happen by the early stage builders in this space, which then yes. leads to standards getting built and these corporates that you're describing looking at that fire and saying, we need to do that quickly. Now, no, it's a great, it's yeah. a great point because we've already seen a little bit of that. I would call them like, you know, campfires, like not full on blazes, but like we've seen like, you know, Axie, Axie Infinity was a campfire. Yes. Like, it, don't get me wrong, it's massive volume, like huge. But like when we saw that happen, it was like, whoa, play to earn. Like this could be the future of gaming, right? And I know there was some hacks and some horrible stuff and some things went sideways and, you know, momentum shifts to the next hottest thing. And, and so, but, but there was, there was a little something there. You mm. know what I mean? Totally. Like even that uh, Axia uh, like really created two ideas. It was the first, this play to earn concept where, you know, the time you spent could actually be replicated into some financial asset that had value. I think that was the first like interesting innovation that Axie pioneered. The second, and like this was the more obvious, but no one had really done it, was figure out a way to take the digital objects that we were earning and playing with in these video games for the last two decades and just put them, use a recording format that was a blockchain and not a private database. And when you do that, that the latter, you start to actually allow markets to form around supply and demand around the objects that people have earned that aren't like this tokenized time, that are more just like mm -hmm. the sword or the pants or the armor or the avatar. Um, and markets can actually develop in a way 
that have always existed on private databases for these games. I played many of them growing up. I'm sure you guys did as well. But now they exist on this ledger that anyone can read and write to, and so markets can form organically. Now that primitive is still pretty early, but like there's no question to me in the future that you know the world's games are going to be leveraging blockchains as a recording format. It's more a function of time than than like if it will happen. Um, but like yeah. I guess we're gonna. It's it, I guess the point that I'm trying to make around Axie is it was an upstart company. They saw this design space. They started experimenting with it. They're creating standards that will set, you know, the world standards for how this stuff will work in the future. And my view is it's not going to be just gaming. It's not just going to be store value art. It's not just going to be media and entertainment or music. It's going to be everything. This is an agnostic infrastructure. Anyone can do with it as they please, but we still need people to take those risks, experiment, try new things to create those standards for us to actually see how this technology will play a role in the future. I just don't know if that that is, you know, six months from now or six years from now. You know, that's the that's the head scratcher for me is like, when does that actually flip? Sa- Sam, curious, you know, should I buy uh, some wolf game right now based on what Derek's saying? I mean, <laughs> the, man, that, that, that's an honest spot question. I, I, I think wolf game, I think still like it is a cool game. I think it be, behaves a lot like most NFT projects, though, uh, in the sense that it's it's got a little bit of this FOMO base for causing the pumps. It's like some news comes out and, you know, you, you start getting, I'll tweet about how Wolf traded for what, you know, call it 70 ETH or whatever. And then people start piling on. I think you were, you were still in that space where that momentum is more the driver um, than like actual usability and whatnot. Um, and I think, uh, I think when we get what Derek's talking about, if we get what I'm not quite as sold as Derek is that that's where we're going. But let's just say that happens. I think you're starting at a much lower price point than where Wolf Game is right now. I think Wolf Game's already kind of in that collectible kind of kind of collectible playing momentum type of type of space uh, versus I think what what, what Derek is uh, is referring to. Based on what what Derek is saying, Sam, are you seeing anything across the board in the data that you're looking at um, around you know you know Axie Infinity is kind of it feels like it's cooled off a bit. Um, is there any up and coming projects that you're keeping an eye on that that are more, you know, not generative art, not the next PFP, but something that is more game like or any other sectors that you're excited I mean, I, about? I pay closest attention to the ETH ecosystem and I look a little bit at Solana and Tezos and other things, but I'd say where, where most of my focus is is on ETH. And, you know, the two projects that I think were, are in that gaming space of sorts is, you know, obviously Wolf Game, as you mentioned, at least in terms of looking at some of the more expensive, some of the projects that have made it kind of into that like expensive tier of NFTs, Wolf Games one, and then Digi Daigaku. And, you know, the, Gabe Layden is, I think, the person in this space that has the most experience building kind of mass adoption games. He's trying to do something similar with Digi Daigaku. And he's just an interesting person to follow, uh, partially because he has just very aggressive, charismatic takes on what it's going to take to bring a billion dollar, you know, a billion users into the space, partially because he's built games before and seen what mobile game virality looks like and how can we integrate that in here. Um, you know, so I'd say DigiDaigaku and that entire ecosystem, he's already had like three or four drops that have gone with it and a bunch of partnerships. That's kind of where I'm looking. I like, I don't think we're anywhere near mass adoption. He does have a Super Bowl ad coming up, which I think will be really interesting because uh, you know, it's a DigiDaigaku does not, I think it's something like 2000 NFTs or it's not a lot of NFTs. Um, it's certainly the user base is still pretty small versus what his vision is. So I think Super Bowl will be really interesting to see how that goes. Super Bowl ads, man. 
you never know if they're freaking good good spends or like if that's the, the beginning of the end if, if somebody does that yeah i mean know? they raised like 200 million dollars just for this nft project and you know he's done super bowl ads before for his mobile games um and talks about how they're a decent spend of money if your goal is cultural relevance um very different from someone like when i was at uber you know, all we cared about was getting more people taking their first ride. That's a very different ad spend than someone whose only goal is cultural relevance. So yeah, I'm curious to see how, uh, how that shapes up. Yeah. I, the Super Bowl ad thing is kind of perplexing to me because like, I agree with that take. If you can actually convert that cultural relevance into something like into some conversion event. And I think the friction, frictions, the onboarding to buy, to like jump onto Blur or OpenSea to buy a Digi Daigaku or engage with the ecosystem or understand what the hell is going on over there. They're just too high right now for like a mainstream audience that watches the Super Bowl to convert into, you know, like that take that cultural relevance and convert it into something important for that project. So I, I don't disagree with the thesis. I just think there's probably a better use of funds than running a Super Bowl. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, I, yeah, really curious. I, just gonna say, I think there's no chance that his goal is to get more people buying Digi Daigaku. Like he, he that, that's, there's no way, you know, the, these, these are NFTs for $10,000. Like we, we all know that Super Bowl ads don't, don't work for that. I think, uh, I would hope, I have no idea what's in his game plan, but I would hope ultimately there is some mass onboarding type of mm. metric that eventually is going to be part of the game plan. That, that would, you would just have to think that. I really got to get a hold of the person that that did the Coinbase ad last year because remember they just put that QR, QR code, code up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like five dollars free or something if you signed up for an account. I can't remember. I thought that Th was that had to be like. I I'll put you in touch with her. She's one of my one of my wife's best friend from college. Did that ad, so I'll. Uh, Kate, Kate oh, Rose, really? awesome. she's a, oh, a Facebook man. exec who now. Uh, very clever is, ad. Is the same clever ad. They did a great job there. Yeah. That's amazing. All right, so. I think we've, we've hit on this one pretty hard. Uh, should we move on to some of the other questions? Let's do it. Um, Sam, what do you, what, what is this? Uh, I think two and three are pretty interesting and they may work part and par parcel with one another. You want to like riff on those for a minute? Sure. The, I mean, the, the second one was a, a, it was a Derek special, which is, which is this idea of no external dependencies. And I think, um, you know, one thing you've talked about and one thing that I think we, we, we've all thought about is what do NFT, can NFTs get to a stage where they're not dependent on a team coming up with new airdrops, building things, and just be, become an artifact that grows in value over time or that maintains value over time or where the, the wheels are in motion for, for the project to, to do well without just like a ton of input from the team constantly I think this is the the golden question in NFTs is is where does all this end? What does what does the off ramp look like where teams are not building videos over and over? I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, certainly, when it comes to utility based PFPs at all, um, but you know, I think we we do see it a little bit with art, although not totally. I think if an artist simply stopped producing, stopped going on spaces, stop you know, stop building a brand for themselves, I think a lot of their art would probably go down in value over time. So. I don't think artists are entirely there yet, but I think you could argue that a few artists are really on the precipice of that or have made that. So the question was really, what does this look like in, in the next year? I think it's probably more of a next five years question. Um, so I, I throw it to you though, Derek, only in the sense that uh, this is a concept that I think you've really kind of brought to, to the common dialogue. And I, I'm curious how you think, I mean, you've talked about squiggles, punks, autoglyphs being um, the projects that you think have no external dependencies. Do you think more enter that 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 sphere over time yeah so i can i this is a, such a fascinating question and mike i i still pretty i still 
feel pretty strongly that directionally it's the right way to think about how value can accrete to things where teams are working on these things versus teams aren't working on these things and some of the other layers of external dependencies like what blockchain they used or you know where uh, whether or not the author of the media can swap out a new image and so on and so forth i will say this this idea that the question that you're asking is like will more projects move to no external dependencies is really a function of like what the project is optimizing for right and it goes back to what i just described if the goal is to be a store of value like cultural object that for whatever reason was able to achieve some technical innovation or historical innovation or cultural innovation and the work itself stands on its own as a marker of like the creative process or the artistic process or the technical process and the author of that work puts it out into the world with no expectations other than the work itself as like this this valuable object that has that sits on its own i think that those types of projects will always exist and best analog is just like the contemporary art market. Like this is really, sure, there's ways for, you know, a creator or an artist to network their asset. They can go to trade shows or they can, you know, have a, a work at, uh, at Basel. They can have gallerists in Los Angeles and Hong Kong. They can, you know, do the things that artists do to like show their creative process and network their careers and, and the objects that they create. But for the most part, there's no real utility baked into these things. They are functionally just like these creative innovations that stand on their own. I definitely think that category will not just continue to exist, but thrive, right? Because like this medium allows for all sorts of digital exploration and we're going to continue to see massive amounts of innovation around these cultural, historical objects that are purely functions of like the creative process and creative merit. But that's not the only way blockchains can be used to the point I was making earlier. They're a great recording format for media, for movies, for gaming, for film, for stories, for music, for all the things, for, you know, building the next, you know, Pixar. It, it literally, the, this thing can be, this blockchain, this database can be used for all sorts of things. And if there's less of a reliance on, you know, if there's, I guess the way I would like frame this is if you're trying to build persistent products and services over the coming decades to drive value to your mission, to drive value, then there is going to be some external dependencies that get baked into the objects that the the project is launching. And I think that experimentation is only going to continue to grow as well, especially as these different verticals start exploring with with the medium. But curious to hear from Kevin and and Sam if that if that kind of thinking lands with you guys. Yeah, I mean for me it's it's really it's really hard to figure out I think what you said on on the technical innovation side and and someone being able to point back to a, a historic first makes a ton of sense for durable no external values uh, uh, to to actually work right like I, I otherwise I don't know I always like run through these use cases in my head and it's either that or something has to have have had a big enough dent in the zeitgeist uh. to where we all say. Um, wow, that, that is a meaningful part of, you know, it may not be on the technical side, but it's a meaningful part of culture that I believe it will, mm. you know, have lasting value over the long term. Like, uh, I'll give an example, not NFT related, but an example. Disney would, ne- if they never produced another Star Wars, or sorry, another X-Men movie for, for, for eternity, and it was just done, 
the the original X-Men number one comic would continue to rise in value over the next Agreed. 100 years, right? Agreed. Like, it's just, it's, it's hit that uh, amount of uh, saturation in the marketplace uh, with consumers that there is affinity, a love for it, a, you know, it's probably part of a lot of our childhoods. Um, you know, it's just kind of like this multi-year baking into our brains and into our ethos of, of now it is, it is meaningful for, you know, forever. So I don't know, you know, if we t- apply that back to PFPs, I think it's, it's, it's a toss up. Like I, 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 I yes, autoglyphs first kind of like crazy generative project on play on, on chain makes sense. Yes. Crypto crypto punks define the 10 K PFP was the standard for, you know, what became the ARC 721 token. Like all these things are important, but I would say there's a lot of projects out there that I don't know, like Moonbirds, no way. We've got a lot of work to do. If Moonbirds, if we stop and, and, and shut up, you know, shop tomorrow, like, yeah, it would be a fun moment that people could look back to and say, wow, that was a crazy chaotic time that happened in this small little window. But a decade from now, probably people wouldn't really know or remember the brand for anything, any particular thing, right? And it's, it's tricky because um, there's no perfect formula here. Like CryptoKitties, they were massive when they came out. They were like the th- hot thing back in the day years ago when they came out and they had captured everyone's attention for a few months, right? But I don't see the same love and attention to the project. And, you know, they're not quite, I don't know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, Sam, you probably have the data, but I don't feel like they have, they've, they've crossed into that no external dependencies world. Um, Rare Pepe's, that's a little bit more zeitgeisty, you know, it's on a weird chain and stuff like that. So it does have some hardcore collectors there. What's your take, Sam? Uh, oh man, so, so many different thoughts that have come from this conversation. But the, the I think the X. First of all, in Crypto Kitties, you have seen uh, some of the Genesis. I don't know the word they use, but the first hundred or something like that do trade in like the thirty ETH range, and there is like a decent market for that product, which I think is very much a no external dependencies. It's just they just saturated the market so much that most of the supply is worthless. But I wonder how much depth there is there, though. Like, what's the volume look like over the last year? You know, like. I get that. Don't get me wrong. There's a ton of like, if you go to art blocks, you, we could we could throw, a, you know, close our eyes and throw a dart at the wall and hit an art blocks project that has a, you know, 20 plus ETH floor. And it could be because just there's a, a ton of diamond hands in that. And there might not be a lot of depth. Like if 10 people decide to sell that project, we could be down to five. Yeah. Eight, right? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure the exact number. I'm sure some of our listeners do know and will we'll tweet at us. But um, yeah, it's a yeah. I think that there are a few hundred. I, I only know this because I track the top like five interesting sales every day. And every now and then a crypto kitty does pop yeah. up there as like a 30 ETH sale. Um, I think the, the X-Men example is super interesting because think about all the utility that X-Men had to build relentlessly to market, yes. to build the art, relentlessly to market more to, you know, build new media, like to go from comic books to TV to movies. Like think about all the utility that they had to build to get to a place where they had that off ramp. And I think that that speaks to in a lot of this space, um, you know, yes, it, this is not a one one year and done thing. Like you need to be out there building brand, doing interesting things, becoming a part of culture. So, you know, and it, it and I, I agree, I, I just don't think this is, I, this is certainly not a, there's no free lunch here. You know, it's, it's going to, it's going to take a lot of work for most projects to get to that point. The other thing is if you look at the, the, you know, Derek's always talked about autoglyphs, chromy squiggles and, and crypto punks. If you look at least at crypto punks and chromy squiggles, you know, it was, this was all an accident. 
You know, I mean, CryptoPunks could not give away right. 10,000 CryptoPunks for free. They tried and people mm. didn't have the tech to do it and they didn't want to pay the gas. I mean, Chromey Squiggles at the beginning, I, I don't, I mean, we're minting for basically nothing. What were they, Derek? Like 10 bucks or something? There was definitely some that went as low as 10. They were mostly between 20 and 30. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I think that's <laughs> so one of the interesting things about creating a piece of history is it's very, very difficult to do it deliberately. Now, you could argue that autoglyphs were a little bit more deliberate. You know, I mean, you know, at that point, Larva Lab said, like, there hasn't been art done on chain in this format. Like, let's be the first to do it. That, that feels like it was a little bit more of a more deliberate innovation. But no, but that's MeBits for them, right? MeBits was their really deliberate, like, let's do this, yeah. like, you know, after they already had enough success, right? Fair, fair enough. But I, yeah, so I, that's the other thought for me is I think a lot of this stuff is very hard. It's, you know, it's, it's and I think once the attention is all on it, you know, it, it, it's not always as obvious as, as kind of looking back at certain things were in, in, in retrospect. And uh, yeah, so th those were a couple of I'll, the thoughts I, that came to mind listening to. I totally agree with, with Sam streaming here. And I think the last, I think like the last kind of stamp I would put on this conversation is there's no right or wrong way, right? Like you can look at CryptoPunks at 60 ETH and Chromie Squiggles at 17 or 18 ETH at Autoglyphs at a few hundred ETH and say, okay, like it's very clear this store of value like contemporary art, no external dependencies, historic, cultural, technical first category is will like accrue value. Like we've just seen that work. But you can also look at, you know, Moonbirds, you know, doing well and Proof Card doing well and Yuga Labs projects continuing to melt up over time. I think the apes are back at 82 ETH or 80 ETH and say, okay, well, it's very clear that the X-Men like, you know, um, relevance and like work that goes in that 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 is required by the team in order to deliver value around yeah. the, the 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 project like that works too like there is no right or wrong answer and this is where I always net out is like this blockchain just doesn't care it's totally agnostic and we're gonna see all types of value written to this over time in all sorts of different directions yeah no doubt all right. Well, I know we're coming up on an hour here, but I think we should get into a couple. Let's let's bang out a couple more. Sure. Yeah, you got some good ones. Yeah, here, Sam, Sam any, this any was ones? awesome. I, what would it, any other? What ones do you guys that, think of? Uh, I was thinking about going into like fractionalization, lending options, a bit more of the mm. financialization of NFTs. And one of the reasons is that Dalton on our team, War Daddy Capital, one of the smartest guys in the game. You know, he he just put out a report on uh, on lending uh, that that I, that I worked with him on, um, and I think. Like, you know, I think a lot of the framework it comes at is, is how is financialization, you know, people being able you, you, NFT perp right now is doing, I think over a million US dollars of volume per day uh, over the past, you know, over the past couple of days. And they're still in beta where people can go long, can go short NFTs, uh, different things there. Ben Dow, let me see if I can pull up this chart here. Um, oh, uh, do I have it? Oh, I, I'll find it. Sorry. But Ben Dow has, over the past week, has issued loans against 300 apes. Um, so, the, so the lending space is getting a lot bigger right now. And I, yeah, I mean, I have certain thoughts, but on how, how is this going to impact the NFT market, if at all? Uh, I'm not sure. It's a bit of a technical question. So I'm not sure if this is an area that you, you guys have specific thoughts, but, but curious if, if anything jumps to mind. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, Derek, I, I'd love to get your take, both of your takes on is that I, I get the, um, the need for these types of, of tools. Like it, it makes sense. I mean, even in the, in the traditional art game, you can literally get financing and refinance uh, high quality blue chip paintings that you purchase. 
Like that's just, it, it is a market that exists. It's not widely talked about, but like these are financial services that exist for trad art as well, right? So the, the fact that they would come to the world of NFTs, it, no brainer. Like the, this, is, this, is, this is not going away. Like people are going to refinance and, and take out loans against NFTs and long and short them. And that, that makes sense. The one thing that I've been trying to wrap my head around is I like this idea of on paper of fractionalization. Like it, it's a very powerful thing to say, I want, I mean, it's essentially what, what, what was pioneered here a couple decades ago, uh, maybe not even that long with fractional share ownership when it came to stocks. Like you could say, um, you know, I remember when Square uh, and, and Robinhood rolled out um, this ability to say, hey, I can't afford Apple at $700 a share, you know, before they did the, all their crazy splits that they used to do. Remember when it was really expensive? Or I can't uh, afford a single share of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, but I want to have some exposure to that, right? And so you could then go in and say, well, I'm going to buy $10 worth or $100 worth. And I, I think that's a very powerful thing for consumers because, you know, here you have collectible art and, and, and there's actually, I think Masterworks does this on the more contemporary side, um, which is a startup that allows you to buy a, a fraction of, of traditional paintings. Um, there's, there's a world where we can say, hey, I can't afford a board ape at these floor prices, but I, I want some exposure. And I, but the only issue I've seen there is I haven't seen the redemption side of it, like when you want to unfractionalize something, I haven't seen that been done and handled in any clean way. Am I missing anything, Sam? Like, is fractionalization getting better? I think I think there are platforms that are out there doing it. I think to your point, though, it's it's been difficult to get serious liquidity. And if there's not a lot of people, if there's not a lot of people trading in and out, then when you decide actually. I own one tenth of this CryptoPunk, and I or one one hundredth or one one thousandth of this CryptoPunk, but I, I need that money for something else. You know, you have to sit around and wait or sell it at a sharp discount, and you know. So I think right. And then why did you even invest in the first place if you're selling it? At yeah, a sharp it kind of defeats some of that purpose. So I, I'm I'm not sure if there are platforms that have developed tons of liquidity, like NFT Perp doing a million dollars in a day. That's pretty interesting, right? And there you're not getting. You're not saying I own one one hundredth of this TR CryptoPunk because the TR trait resonates with me or this gold grill board ape. You're just saying I'm going to bet on the floor price, which is a different bet. I think there are people who actually can form a connection with a specific piece of art or a PFP and be like, I, I want to own a fraction of that. But I think the the perp market, you know, you're seeing a little bit more volume there and just. And I think I also think like the punk token, which just tracks the punk floor. I think that has had decent liquidity, but none of this has been relevant enough to move the needle or to be something that we are obviously noticing. I think like the three of us, mm -hmm. if the if these were markets that were having serious impact, I think it would get to the place where we would have seen more by now. Um, and during the bull market, I traded a little bit of fractions, but it's, just, it's I haven't seen anything huge. The other thing is there's a platform called Rally Road where they fractionalize, but they do it all in the fiat market. So you don't even have to touch the blockchain they buy a board ape and they sell it to you, you give them your credit card or you transfer money in. And, and, but again, they have the exact same problem where there's just no secondary liquidity. Right. Yeah. I looked at rally a while ago. I know Gary V did um, a, a drop on rally for his members that went to his conference. And I was like, that's, that's fun. Like you're taking a really rare, uh, one of his NFTs, putting in there, fractionalizing it, allowing everybody to have you know, a fraction of that, but you're right. I, I started getting on rally and I thought this would be a really fun, fun, uh, platform to, you can buy like Batman number one, right. It's on the front page of their, of their, like a traditional comic, right. And own a, a share of it. 
But without that liquidity, you're kind of stuck, right? And it, that's just like, that's scary. Yeah, it's a strong primary market, but the secondary market's really bad. Yeah, I'll just add one quick thought there, uh, which is like, there's a lot of sharp founders working on financialization of NFTs. Um, there's Jake over at Hook.xyz doing cover call options. There's Arnav at Nibble.xyz doing fractionalization. There's Steven and his team at Niftify among others that, uh, that you guys are talking about. So some really sharp people working on what the financialization of this asset wrapper will look like in the future. I think I totally agree uh, with the points being made here around like liquidity and just, it's just a, the, the demand just doesn't feel like it's there for complex financial strategies around this asset class yet. The two things that I'm looking for is more professionalization on the, the demand side to come into this space. Uh, I think that's probably going to be a lagging indicator. The thing that I think will end up tipping people to do more interesting strategies around this asset wrapper is more interesting assets that are using the wrapper. Like right now, it's just PFPs and collectibles. And um, even these things, like the liquidity of the underlying is like is interesting, but not very interesting. My view is that as more value flows move on to these ledgers, then more assets will leverage this asset wrapper, right? Like the NFT can be used to wrap anything. Uh, it could be used to wrap uh, equity and, you know, PE, VC, it could be used to wrap real estate, it could be used to wrap, you know, uh, music and gaming assets and so on and so forth. And I think we're waiting for those two things to happen, which is more interesting assets that are using the NFT wrapper to come in and start leveraging this space and like the, the design space of digital objects on these ledgers. And then once that kind of starts happening, more professionalization um, from the demand side to start engaging with, with some of this infrastructure. That's kind of how I see it, but would be curious, Sam, because I know you and Dalton are spending more time here, if that's how you see it as well. Uh, two things I'll throw in uh, before we wrap up. One is just a plug. Dalton has been doing these conversations with founders uh, that he's record recording and we're actually publishing them to Moonbirds and Collective Holders. So uh, that that's just like a cool feature right now for, for Moonbird Holders is Dalton is recording his conversations just like we're, we're recording this and he's publishing them with a lot of these founders who I think are at the forefront. So that's just a, a really cool thing. The second thing is, That's awesome. I don't think a lot of this stuff is that futuristic. It's actually happening right now in the sense that, I mean, to, to your point, Derek, you know, yes, we, we should do a whole, we, you and I should do a whole conversation. We should do a whole conversation on other use cases of NFTs, why they haven't happened yet, what needs to happen for that to happen, you know, what, et cetera, et cetera. Because that's, I think that's at, at the core of a lot of what you've been saying in this conversation. And it's, it's a super interesting topic. The thing I think is interesting is, is lending is already happening right now. Where I like if and Agreed. I put this chart on the screen here. This is the total number of Bendow board ape Jakob loans uh, per week, uh, and this past few weeks has had more than ever before. And that last period in May had huge impacts on the market. And th this is and this is just Bendow. We're not like NFT fies out there with a lot of loans. Arcade, you know, Cyrus, one of the best traders and lenders in the game, is an advisor at Arcade. I think they're really moving onto the forefront. And this has had impact uh, on the market already. And the two, first, you know, the two biggest impacts that I've seen are one is it has increased, it increases volatility, both on the upside and the downside. So over the past few weeks, you've seen 350 loans go out against apes. What does that, what does that do? It gives ape holders more ETH. And what do they do with that ETH? They buy more apes. So you end up when things go up and people can take loans out, you know, you're seeing like more of that money get thrown into 
the same asset class that's there and it increases that volatility on the upside. The same thing ha- has happened on the downside. When you start hitting the, tri- hitting the triggers where these loans need to be liquidated, uh, you know, then you start seeing it, as the price goes down, more apes need to be sold. And we've already had two incidents, we've had two moments over the past three months where there's been a lot of downward volatility on board ape prices because as the floor price went lower, more and more apes needed to be sold. And you've seen that also a little bit on doodles. You've seen that on mutants. So I think one of the impacts is we are getting this increased, uh, is, is that, you, yeah, you are getting this increased volatility uh, that's happening. And the second thing, I do think there is a little bit of risk for market manipulation. I don't think none of this stuff matters for a long-term holder, right? For a long-term holder, you're part of a community, you're investing in a team, you're investing in a collectible item that you think is going to accrue value over time. Um, but like when things are going down and there are, and there are these trigger prices for more a- assets to be liquidated, you do see people like trying to list below that price so that things can get liquidated and they can buy cheap apes. So I do think those, those are two things. One is you, there are going to be interesting things on a liquidity. Certainly markets get more volatile as there's more financialization. Um, and then secondly, there is a little bit of risk for that market manipulation where someone says, okay, in order to trigger liquidations, we need the floor below this. Let's drop it. You know, I own five apes. Let's put one below that. So those are two of the things I'm watching out for. I think net-net, they're broadly neutral for long-term value. Um, but I think that there are some, those are just a couple of the impacts that I see happening. Yeah, great topic. Got endless amount of conversation around this one. But at some point, we'll have to dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah. So we're, we're coming up on time, but I, wa- I kind of wanted to end this, if you all are okay with it, with just some, some predictions for, for this year, because it's always fun to look at this next year and see how wrong we were. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'd be curious, we can, we can take this any way you all want, but you know, one of the things I thought was interesting that we said before we even started recording is that we think we're in a mini uh, kind of bull run right now. Um, you know, Artblocks has been on fire for months. Does that continue? Like, there's some, there's some interesting things to pick apart here. Like, where where we think this year is going to end up? Um, I- anything you all want to throw out there is uh, your take on kind of where where we're headed, and it doesn't have to be a full year out, but just where we're headed over the next few months. Sam, you want to kick us sure. off? I mean, one thing I'm really curious to see is a project that is started by someone who's like deep in the content creation game. I, you know, I think a lot of the the you know, someone who's like written shows for Nickelodeon, who's written shows for HBO and says, my next project where I want to build narrative and story is through an NFT. And I want to build this whole universe. I want to start with the NFT. Then I want to go to HBO and build a show that's going to be awesome. I think what we've had this year is a lot of, a lot of, you know, people who have just been awesome entrepreneurs, super creative, super innovative, but like with really diverse backgrounds and we're kind of like backing into this content creation thing a little bit. And it, you know, I, I'm that, that's one thing I would, I, I'd be really curious to see if that can onboard folks. So that's one thing that I'm looking at. The second thing is, are we going to get more museums buying NFT art? Are we going to get more like, you know, I think we've already got it with Sotheby's. I think it's kind of interesting. Every time I'm like doing a podcast with a creator, like we're talking about how they want to go mainstream and then then they just dropped that they already did a Sotheby's sale that went for $60,000. <laughs> like Claire Silver has done one, Grant Yoon's done right. one. Like, you know, the, the auction houses are onto this and are making money from this and they want to be in this space. But I think like maybe it's more of the traditional collectors, you know, in, in the podcast I did with Trey Ratcliffe, he talked about how mo- you know, he has people spending millions of dollars on his prints uh, or hundreds of thousands or whatever the number is who won't even touch NFTs. So again, it's like, do we get more of that like traditional art buyer the the museums, the curators, the gallerists, 
um, getting into the space? Can that create more, you know, just more effects that, 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 are, are good for everybody. Obviously, I know you guys both think that when that happens, squiggles are the are the way to play that. That you know that squiggles become you know just more of a grail piece, which they already are. Uh, but that that's another that's, that, that, that's another trend that that I'm watching. I'm just making. Don't buy based on what I just said. Everyone. That was just yeah, a, a joke. Don't. <laughs> I was thinking of Jesus, something Kevin. to say about you guys and loving squiggles and and our audience, but uh, but you, you've helped people make make ETH. So. None of this is financial uh, advice. Of course, let's go. So, yeah, so okay. th- th- those are a few That's thoughts right. for me. Great, great thoughts, Sam. I'll I'll try and run quick through this. The first is um, I think the store of value, like job to be done is now really starting to be understood. We've talked about it quite a bit over the last year on this show. Uh, I'm working on a, a written piece about, uh, about that right now that I hope to publish in the next, let's call it four weeks or so. Um, so I'm announcing it here so that you guys can hold me to it. Um, but I think as it relates to like that job to be done of storing value in these digital objects, like that will only continue to increase and be understood. And as a result, um, some of like these core cultural technical, historic innovations that we've talked about on the show will continue to get more attention and continue to get more understood as these, you know, as a way to get, you know, trust minimized exposure to some of, um, some of these store value like assets that exist on, on, uh, on Ethereum. Uh, so that's the first prediction is like that will just continue to grow in understanding and importance and popularity and, and more and more we'll find buyers that want to, to, to solve that job to be done using ETH-based assets and ETH-based NFTs. Uh, the second prediction I have is just around generative art more broadly. Um, you know, I I have the benefit of of being able to to chat with a lot of the artists that are working in the space, a lot of the leading thinkers and technologists, and uh, many of which are, have understood generative art to be have become more and more like this very crypto native form, right? By injecting randomness into not just like the creation process on chain, but then also the collection process, and then also the storage process. Uh, because you've got this on-demand uh, procedural uh, random, um, you know, let's call it like amorphous uh, thing that's now being injected into like how these asset class, how, how this assets, you know, can gain value and the collective can come around them. This design space that's unlocked with generative has just become like more and more well understood. My view is that it started on blockchain-based rails. But where we're going is that more and more, it's going to end up in physical real world spaces. Um, so the idea that the objects around us are very much unique in the real world, can we actually use the primitives of on-chain generative media, on-chain generative art to start informing some of the generative outputs that exist in everyday life, whether it's the houses we live in or the mm-hmm. benches we sit on or you know the buildings we walk into or the posters that hang on the wall and so on and so forth. And I think you know what I told Snowfro I was going to do, right? I did. Yeah, I mean that's a perfect yeah. example. So Kevin, maybe you can drop it, uh, or you can chat a little bit about what you're thinking there. Yeah. So uh, Marfa, Texas, is where where they do a lot of the uh, you know art blocks. It has a, a HQ out there, uh, and they do the annual art blocks event. It's a fun little tiny town. Um, back in the day, I don't know what the prices are these days, but you could pick up literally acres of land for like you know hundred thousand dollars type of thing. Like it was like, it was pretty inexpensive to buy property out there. And so, um, myself and a few other individuals, you know, did just that. Like we, we, we bought little chunks of land. Derek, you have a fantastic gallery out there now, which is glitch gallery. It's amazing. Got to go visit that. Um, and 
one of the things that Snowfro did with his most recent drop, um, you know, that that he came out with was uh, just these beautiful generative homes, like these little tiny generative pods um, with artwork inside of them. And so I told I told Eric, I said, you know, hey, uh, I'll, I'll build one of these on my land. Like, let's 3D print this and just put it on the land and make it as, as something that people can come visit and check out. Right. So like this idea of this first generative house being built um, and we'll put it on this land and make it just like a fun destination. So when we're all out there, we can go out there and you know, have some beers, kind of hang out, watch the sunset because it's so really beautiful awesome. out there and just check out this generative house. And, you know, um, yeah, there's, uh, is that a picture of Eric's place? Yeah, that was that, when we were out that there. You just, put up? Uh, just so everyone can see the visual yeah. of, of what the land looks like. And Yeah, it's beautiful. So, so basically, uh, you know, that's the plan is, is and, and I don't think it's going to like, literally, I think it's, you know, kind of a, a 50K kind of thing to do something like this. Like these are small little pods that'll be built. But it, it's more just uh, a, a, to to be a first and to say, hey, this was a generative piece that we turned into something real world, right? Kevin, like a, Kevin, a, I think a tiny house. It's it's so clear to me that even things like generative structures, generative buildings, over the next five to ten years, this is going to become a massive, massive industry, art form, way that people express themselves, creating uh, using the principles of on chain procedural randomness and bringing it into real world experiences. And for yeah. you to get this out there in Marfa will to me, represents um, a pretty important moment in this transition that's happening. So, two things. One, can't wait to, to go watch Sunset, drink beers, hang out over there with you guys at the spot. But then two, my view is this will probably become a destination for a lot of people in Marfa to come and swing by and check out the thing you've built as this you know, emblem of this transition that's happening from pure digital spaces into now physical ones. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's crazy. I mean, we, it's it's funny because it's what it is. I'll, I'll let you get back to your your point here, and Derek. Well, I'll, I'll cap it with this. It, it's it's an extension of what we already do today, in that we hire architects mm. that we love yes. and appreciate, that are well known, that have a reputation to build us structures. Right? We hire uh, Tadao Ando, uh, famous Japanese, you know, architect, but is really known for his concrete work just to do concrete yes. because his concrete is so badass. Like we, so we're, we're saying this structure was done via someone's algorithm yes. that they developed. And so we're just taking, it's the same principle. Totally right? We're taking agree. someone that we admire and, and applying it to, but, to a physical and place. It's gonna, uh, I was just oh, saying that, ahead, what it adds though, that's different. And I think what generative art, it wouldn't, the, the piece of generative art that's just structurally different from before it is randomness. You know, like that, it adds yes. that new mm -hmm. variable. And I'm sure there have been ways that randomness has been incorporated into art long before, but not, you know, as far as we know, like the, it, randomness is such a key component of, uh, of generative art. So it is mm -hmm. an, an interesting variable to want to throw into a structure as well. Totally. It's going to be so much it's fun. It's going to be awesome. And uh, so my prediction is, A, that's definitely going to be happening. I, I, the benefit of talking to artists and, and folks that are like thinking very deeply about how these worlds are going to start colliding with, with one another. Uh, but then B, um, I also feel strongly that Artblocks as an institution has been far ahead of the curve in understanding this transition. And we'll start to see some really interesting stuff uh, that, they, that they do in approaching this intersection. And if you believe that on-chain procedural randomness and generation and and on-demand uh, creation and collection, these primitives that have uh, that really been um, pioneered by Artbox and, and the Chromie Squiggle, 
uh, really start to be understood as a core part of how things get created in the future, then you can draw a line back to some of the earliest works, earliest creators. And these things will mm-hmm. always have that halo effect of being, you know, th- uh, these important firsts in, in, in both the innovations and cultural significance that they've had in, in informing these views playing out in the real world. It all comes back so to fun. squiggles. <laughs> you <laughs> said it. Not it me, always dude. does. I'm not saying you didn't nothing. say anything, Derek. It's just inference, you know. <laughs> there you go. I I just I just love sitting on the sidelines and watching the squiggles climb over time. It it just oh, man, I they're the best. Things dude. And I'm just like rainbow lines. They're the best. The rainbow they're lines, best. man. Okay. All right. So here's my predictions uh, going into this year. I, I I I hate to be the Debbie Downer slash whatever uh, Downer. But I, I, this is, um, I think I've heard rumblings and I've talked to a handful of projects that um, are running out of capital. And this is just the real, the real facts of, of, of things here. And that, you know, a lot of projects, as you know, have gone off, had these primary sales, they raise a few million dollars, they go, they throw events, they do all the right things, that, the playbook, the things that we're, we're doing, we're trying to build community, we're trying to get momentum, we're trying to do all these things. And as someone that has failed more uh, then I have succeeded in the world of startups. Um, it, it's like, I, this is the game we play, right? We go out, we build. And, and this is the, the law of startups. In, in, as a VC, you know this well, Derek. It's like 10% of the ideas that get generated are the ones that are actually going to make it, right? And of that 10%, it's probably only another 10% uh, that are actually going to be massive, right? So you have ones that'll return your capital and you're like, oh, you know what? That's great. I got, got the cash back. But the vast majority of startups fail. That's just the, the nature of startups. And there have been a handful of projects that I've spoken with that are trying to find soft landings. They're trying to find homes for their project because the capital, it's clear that the capital isn't going to last forever. And it's clear that in today's market, there isn't another drop that is going to give them an infusion of cash to go out and continue to build, right? So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of skeleton teams that are kind of going to kind of form uh, around some of these projects, and some will just probably stop development altogether. Um, you know, especially with, especially compounding pro- the problem is the secondary royalties going away on on these things, right? So that also makes it really difficult for acquisitions to take place because in the past it's like, oh, X project is kind of going sideways. Let's see if we can pick them up because if we can do a shot in the arm in this project. You know, we can get those royalties kicking back in again, and we can actually turn this into a roll-up, right? This is like classic media business, like IAC, for example. You know, uh, they're so well known for just going up and rolling up media properties. Like you probably, most people have probably never heard of IAC, but if you go out there and see who they own, it's like they own a bunch of media entities that are household names, and they are they just go and roll them up, right? And they 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 bring in the teams. They if they might be struggling or going sideways, and they they kind of like are there's like this PE playbook where you come in, you strip the team down, you go in and um, refactor things and relaunch it and, and turn it into something meaningful. And there was a bit of this last year where we saw acquisitions of CryptoPunks and other projects that were getting rolled up, right? But with royalties going away, I think that's going to get a lot harder to actually have these acquisitions take place. So I think that largely... There's going to be two ways that people are going to play this game. They're going to say, here's a new, well, I think one, get ways, one way is going to get really tired. The, the, the tired way is going to be that people are going to go and play this game of who's the last person holding the bag and let's rush into this project and get our quick like 3x, right? 
we've seen this over the last few months, and I'd be curious to get Sam's take on this, but like the number of projects that have skyrocketed only to immediately fall right back down, you know, a, a week later, three weeks later, like it's just, it's, it's been a lot, right? And so I, I think that people are going to catch on and say, I'm not going to play this game. And those, hopefully, I think it'll be better for the ecosystem that those will go away. You'll have new interesting projects that will launch, um, which I hopefully are going to be not just the same old playbook, but coming up with something new and novel and exciting that we can go after. Hopefully one of those breaks through to the, be a mainstream project that will really pop with a much wider uh, audience. But I, I think largely you're also going to see a flight to quality. And I think art blocks shining right now. I think CryptoPunks will continue um, to, to pop. I, I think we're going to see more and more capital realizing that these OG projects, it, you are better leverage to hold OG projects than to hold ETH. Like I think there is a world where we can make the argument that given the, the kind of correlation between the prices of CryptoPunks and ETH, like if, if I can go in and hold punks and the punks go up in value, and I get the kicker of ETH appreciating at the same time, that's a multiple I wouldn't have by just holding ETH on its own, right? And so that's an interesting potential upside that I think a lot of people are going to be attracted to, myself included, um, as a way of rather than just holding ETH and sitting on it and staking it, um, I, I would much rather you know, hold something that at the floor level is very liquid, like punks, uh, like some of these other projects that have very active floors, um, rather than just holding ETH. Anyway, that was a, lot, a bunch of rambling. The last thing I'll say is that this, and I, I don't ever pump bags here, my own bags. Well, I talk about squiggles, but like people already know that. But aside from that, I will say, I don't talk a lot about, about our proof projects. I will say that this is the year that we are absolutely going for it with, with Moonbirds. Like where it's, it's time to put our foot on the gas. And, you know, we've got a few things, a few major questions um, to, to answer. And, and, and you'll see in the coming months that we're going to answer these, these important questions, which for us are, you know, what does Moonbirds really stand for as a community? Um, what can we all kind of champion and, and rally behind as a community? Um, and then, you know, what is that single product and experience that is uniquely ours that will bring value back to the holders? You know, and how can that be different than anything that we've seen out there that's currently being built? Um, and then on top of that, lastly, you know, we've, we've introduced this like Hoots reward system internally on our Discord that has gone pretty well. And we're, we're excited. It's a very early alpha version of this reward system where it's like kind of give one, get one uh, style inside of our Discord. I think you'll see some experimentation there that extends that into a, a lot more of the things that we do. So I'm excited for, for what we're building. Uh, I know it's a little bit of pump in our own bags, but I, I got to say, you know, it, it's good to be fired up again. Love it. Love it. Guys, this has been an awesome, awesome episode. Kev, I know you got a, 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 a you got to get to the, uh, the show here. A little fireside chat fireside here. Chat. Yeah. Got to jump on stage here in a minute. It was, uh, it was an honor to, to hang out with you guys and excited to keep these rolling. Yeah, Sam, thanks for all your great data, man. Every time you, you come armed and strapped with charts and graphs that Derek and I, uh, we're just DJs over here compared to your <laughs> real rigor that you put behind this stuff. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, happy new year, guys. And uh, we'll see you back here soon. And Derek, and you and I will be back on here next yes, week. Yes, sir. Chat soon, gang. All right. Take care. Let's go.